lovely authors who are going to be helping me discuss the sci-fi influences that led us to get to where we are, and we'll see where that conversation takes us. To start off, we have Wendy. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Wendy Van Camp. I'm a author and poet of science fiction. I'm Damon, or DC Ballard. Uh, I'm Greg Krojak. I write short stories, novellas, and novels. Hey, I'm uh, Bill McCormick, a.k.a. Bill McSci-Fi. Thanks to a screw up at Amazon, I got that cool name. Uh, I'm a I'm an author, published, and uh, I just wrote a screenplay that got sold and optioned. Wrote a novel based on the screenplay. I write short stories. I write a lot of stuff. I do not write poems ever. Never do. <laughs> there are two poems in my books, and both of them are meant to be bad because they are. <laughs> so, well, then you hit your target. I'm Eric Klein, a sci-fi writer, tech writer security, disaster recovery, uh, all sorts of other funky stuff that ends up back in the books too. None of us would be sci-fi writers in one form or another if somebody hadn't actually stuck a book that caught our interest way back when and corrupted us for life. I, I, I like that way of putting it, corrupted us for life. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And actually, in my case, it really did corrupt me for life because the very first science fiction book I ever read was Voyage of the Space Beagle. By A.E. Van Vogt, which I don't know if you've read it, but it is an incredibly bad book with talking cats and all sorts of stuff. It's science fiction gone sideways. And I loved it. I absolutely, I devoured it. I, I read a bunch of his stuff. Uh, later ran across, I forget the author's name, but uh, uh, time is the silliest thing. And I just started, when my introduction into sci-fi, instead of being Heinlein, Asimov, Clark, were like all these secondary, tertiary people who wrote some incredible stuff. And by the time I got to Heinlein, Asimov, and Clark, I was better prepared to read them and I enjoy them much more. But the stuff that influenced me was the bent stuff, the broken stuff, the stuff that was just <laughs> took, took a look at reality and just whacked it against the wall. So if you read my stuff, you go, yeah, I get that now. <laughs> no, that does, that does make sense. I mean, you did have to kill off the world for... Uh... <laughs> for one of your books, right? Um, well, actually, um, for the trilogy, The Broker Riders, I kill every man, woman, and child in the preamble before it gets to chapter one. And then in the sequel, prequel to that, Go Free of the Mist, which is coming out this year, uh, it starts off with people, and then there's no people, and then no more people. Again. So I basically killed every human twice to, just to drive the point home, I guess. I don't like people. <laughs> You obviously you just killed them all, and that was a thing. And yeah. then you decided, let me go ahead and prescribe killing everybody off. <laughs> That's actually very close to what I did. <laughs> My introduction to science fiction was a lot more peaceful. Believe it or not, there is a child's series called Space Cat, and it has sequels Space Cat Goes to Mars. And it's about an astronaut and his cat, and the cat wears a spacesuit too. And they go on adventures in an interplanetary thing. And it's all illustrated. It's beautiful. And as a small child, I loved this book so much, I stole it from our school library. All and right. Actually, 
I still have it today. <laughs> I found it in a box somewhere. It's so funny. Somewhere there's a librarian oh. who's going to be tracking you down soon. They really want the book back from the 1970s. They're welcome to it. Your late fees on that one are pretty extensive. My introduction wasn't so much books. It was Jerry Anderson, if you know who he is. You should know who he is, Mm -hmm. if you like science fiction. Super Mario Nation. Does that ring any bells? Mm -hmm. Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds. Exactly, exactly. I'm old enough that I was into... um, to the, the supercar, Bible XL5, and then Doctor Who, the original Doctor Who. I remember seeing that. Who was I, your I first doctor? The standard, William Hartnell. All right. The yeah, very first at doctor. the way beginning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Had my space behind the sofa book. I, I had to wait till um, Tom Baker came around before I was actually able to find it. Yeah, same oh, here. I was very much uh, born with uh, Baker when it comes to Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see, born with is an interesting case. My, <laughs> my, my start into sci-fi happened, I'm exactly one week younger than Star Trek. Well, you know, the, the actual series, not the pilot. So my parents used to take me every Sunday night to watch the original Star Trek at a neighbor's house who had a color TV, which was a big thing back then. And from basically one week old, I was watching Star Trek and being corrupted by Roddenberry and his love for uh, Shakespeare from the beginning. Wow. I kind of remember, I remember that. that. sit on my father's knee and we'd watch Star Trek together when I was a small child. Um, we watched Star Trek in our home and thought, it wasn't until I started reading stuff that it really made me do jump into it. You know? yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, I grew up with the Saturday morning cartoons of things like Thundercats and uh, Silverhawks, which I've gone back and looked at, and it's just cringeworthy. <laughs> oh, on that topic. It really is. Look, looking back on it now, it's just, especially at having dived much deeper into sci-fi, it's just like, oh, God. What was I? What did I see as valuable in that? But you know, it was kids' entertainment. So, but I mean, really, the big influence for me was my father's library. Yes. I would go in, and I had access to the stainless steel rat. Read that, you know, I I read through his entire library, and then that's what that was. That's what got me started. He had two thousand one in there. He had uh, Asimov in there, and honestly. I really, really struggled with Foundation when I first got my hands on it. 2001 reads like it's three separate books glued together badly. Right. It, I, I, I get that. and But really, but each of them were Foundation, good. I just couldn't manage to get into when I first started reading. It was just too dry. Well, Damon, you were probably younger when you first read Foundation. Oh, I, 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 I was. You have a certain age to understand it. it it is a very complex uh, concept book and yeah, but it was long children's stories and i think a lot of children struggled because it wasn't really meant for them i mean much of as much of his work is but this particular series i think is more for adults and when you go back and read it as an adult it, it's much more meaningful well i mean the main villain is a well-hung character called the mule 
So no, he wasn't aiming that at children. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I, after I got through things like the Heechee Chronicles, uh, mm -hmm. the Man Zen War stuff, etc., I was able to go back to Asimov and actually get through Foundation and enjoy it. Okay, how but, far did you, know, you get in Menzikin? It's part of that. I have all of them. All, all the way up through the, the later um, uh, Ringworld books and stuff? Oh, yes. Now that, that that's a, that's a story into it itself, the whole ring world stuff. He did have the advantage of being able to go back and fix the plot holes that were pointed out for him. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, the stability pointed problem. out as much to pointed out as much to polite. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you have the, when you have the MIT guys coming to the con and chanting "Ring World is unstable" at you, it's really hard to ignore them. Um, <laughs> Well, true. That, that's one thing about being a science fiction writer. Make sure your science is right, or they will come after you at every con. And it, it goes for anybody <laughs> that writes this stuff. Uh, but I, and right. I think that's kind of um, unique to our genre, in a sense. There's a story about by Robert Heinlein, where he's talking at one point, some neighbors of his were also science fiction writers. They were trying to figure out where something would hit the moon when an object was launched from the Earth, where it would hit the moon. This is before spaceflight. Mm -hmm. So they took rolls of butcher paper and laid it out and did all the math and checked the math and then had a, a couple of scientists come in from MIT to check their math. And they put this into the book, and it was too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> it, to, to finish that story, it wasn't even a picture of where on the moon. It was what you would see of the moon through the porthole in a quick glimpse. Mm -hmm. That was um, Requiem. He, he tells the story and expand in the universe. And yeah. uh, I, I recommend that for anyone who just wants to dive into his mind for a little while. He, he did the same thing when he did um, the script for Destination Moon. They insisted on having everything accurate down to the details and the math and what you're going to see through the portholes and completely crazy level of detail that most people don't bother with these days. But you don't have to have the science right. You have to have the science consistent. I would agree with that. It's Especially if you're going to move uh, further away uh, from existing science that uh, you, Eric, play with into more far future, you know, alternate realities and stuff. As long as it is self-consistent and logically consistent, whether it actually maps to what we understand of physics within our universe or not is less important as long as it makes sense and you don't violate it. Mm -hmm. You don't have the, you know, the hero, nobody can do this thing until the hero can suddenly do it. With no training, <laughs> no, no explanation as no... to why. Yeah. Do you think that oh, Star Wars is why we are less inclined to be as real with our science? In science fiction, because Star Wars is essentially a space opera or almost like a science fantasy in a sense. Mm -hmm. And because it goes back it's further. So popular, it just change the criteria? No, it goes back further. Star Trek was that way to begin with. Star Trek had science advisors, yeah, but... and they did an awful lot of what Terry Pratchett would refer to as hand wavium science that just kind of like the lithium crystals, all sorts of other things that were completely beyond the realm of, even today, we still don't understand what he meant, which is why things like Galaxy Quest is just such a lovely story. 
beyond the fact that it's a really cool movie, is somebody actually went and said, okay, hey, wait, they talk about beryllium balls. Let's figure out how we're going to make a power supply out of beryllium balls, and they really build it. It's like, okay, so these authors came up with all this bullshit, and suddenly somebody actually went out and said, hey, it works. And this is kind of... That has happened for real because a lot of technology we have now is based off of ideas out of Star Trek. I mean, heck, just look at the warp drive thing. The uh, scientist that, uh, or mathematician that did that got his inspiration from uh, Star Trek warp drives and spoof, he found out maybe it's possible. So it's kind of funny if that works out. And of, but, and of uh, course, the communicator is the, is a really famous one, especially yeah. with the flip phone. <laughs> yes. Yes. And now Bluetooth, where you know you, I've seen it. Somebody built a Bluetooth uh, thing, and they put it in a little thing you can wear on your chest. Yes. And if you go to the Star Trek website, they sell masks that you can buy with the different things. But they actually have a built-in Bluetooth communicator tapped on it, so you can tap and talk to people. Right? I don't know how useful that is, but it was cool The earpiece that Aurora used is exactly mm-hmm. the same thing. Ignoring the Doctor Who reference to Bluetooth pieces that people wear. I've got a co-worker that we make fun of because he's always wearing a Bluetooth attached to his ear like one of the the episodes from the Cybermen. (laughs) (laughs) That's the great thing about sci-fi is the way it does influence our world because people that grow up, the technologists, the engineers that grew up on sci-fi, they become obsessed with something that some author came up with and then they like i want to make this as real as i can 90 percent of the people at nasa were, were quizzed at one point in the uh, early 90s while they were still in the space shuttle program and it's like 90 percent of them came back and said that they got into science and into sp- the space because of star trek uh, or star wars it was just what drove them into the topic which hoping for a better future I would like to hope that some of our writings will inspire a generation to get into real tech, real science, rather than shiny vampires and stuff, because I really don't want shiny vampires <laughs> in my future. My diamond batteries. Diamond batteries diamond are a great batteries. concept. Oh, yeah. I want those. <laughs> that is a brilliant concept. I'm obsessed with it now that I'm... Because of you that I found out about. <laughs> well, I, I found out about them and stuck them into one of my books. And yeah, one meter cubes of, of radioactive diamonds being battery supplies is awesome. But I love the idea, holy shit, I can get a power supply to put into my smartphone, my laptop, whatever, that's going to outlive the device by a thousand years. <laughs> yes. And that's with constant use. <laughs> yes. The idea of, okay, we're going to make a standard battery that will be the micro size for the mini devices and one for the laptops, one for the cars and stuff. And we just replace the device around the battery is a concept I would really love to get into for uh, recyclable parts. But this is still science fiction today. Sometimes there's stuff out there already or being worked on that we can drop into our, 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 our books, our stories, like you were just talking about the diamond batteries. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of Claytronics? That name yeah. sounds familiar. It's, it's a research project um, where they're working on basically nanotechnology shape-shifting. And yeah. they call the things cat- catums or catums. I've only seen it written down, so I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. But I've introduced those into, into my, my books as well, the Sofan Trilogy especially, because it's, it's something that seems, well, it's really science fiction-y, but it's actually happening as well there's there's a video on youtube explaining it 
It's a really cool concept. The best example of that I've seen up till now is, I think it was Star Trek number three, the third movie, where they go back in time and they talk about transparent aluminum. Mm-hmm. Four, actually. It was, right, four. Right. Three, three was con. No, two was con. Oh, we're, we're going down a rabbit hole here. Go back to the... <laughs> no, never mind. So where Scotty is actually giving this formula for transparent aluminum, somebody actually put out a paper six months before the movie came out for a form of aluminum that is actually transparent. It legitimately existed at the time that the movie came out. It was like, yeah, okay, which is causing which? Um, (laughs) I would like to think that fiction is first and we are the ones that inspire the science. And that's actually our function as writers to explore the future for people before the future is actually here and to point out either the positives or the pitfalls so that the people in the real world can make up their mind in a sense and then go forward that way. It's really quick sometimes. I mean, I know we take a lot of information and we use it in our writing. So there's a lot of that too. But I really think our function is to inspire and to show what can be. And and I love Roddenberry and some of the other Golden Age science fiction writers that they wanted to show what science could do to be a positive influence on our lives. And I think we've gotten away from that for quite some time. And I'm starting to see a resurgence of that positive influence of science once again. And I'm very glad to see that, to be honest. There are a lot of topics that are like that. Um, Science fiction has done a lot of the philosophical and uh, social and moral investigations on a lot of topics long before science could make them practical. Okay, the original Star Trek, uh, going back to Khan, okay, the whole concept of what happens when you can do that kind of eugenics and breed people for specific skills and things, and what what can go right and what can go wrong with it. David Brin wrote the whole uplift thing because he was influenced by the original Khan from the 60s. He wrote the whole uplift thing that we could work with dolphins and gorillas and what have you as the story goes on, these chimps and what have you, he's got everything in there. But that we could uplift them and they could become an integral part of our society and a productive part of our society. And that the conflicts between us would be somewhat remote, you know, that it'd be like more like social sociological fitting in. Dolphins are kind of they're horn dogs, you know, they want to have sex with everything. So that makes them slightly problematic in group situations. Uh, chimpanzees they mate in groups and so so you know he he brought all that in and he very uplifting and you know uplift and it's it's really wonderful and when I wrote the brutal riders I took it the exact opposite direction same thing the same genetic stuff the same genetic manipulation I killed everyone and I let their bodies rot by the way Bryn knows about this he and I have become friends since this so you know it's not like I'm talking out of school he thinks I'm a little dark (laughs) <laughs> you are um, have you ever read blood music I don't know what that is I want to know now. it's a novel you should take a look at somebody went and created a, a way of taking individual cells and uplifting them if you would to sentience mm. and then as he's getting shut down injects them into himself and okay. it, it follows the whole thing through as if you take the whole concept of Heisenberg's principle and perception of what the world is or, or Schrodinger's, okay, once you've got enough consciousness that has a different view of what the world is or should be, does that start changing the world? And what happens is people start getting cross-infected and stuff. It's, it's a really 
dark kind of scary story of that, that ends up not everybody dead, everybody kind of ends up as puddles of cells that kind of spread over and take over the whole world because pretty much just takes over every living anything. A bathtub full of water and yes. let the cells. Okay, I have read that one. Okay, okay. I, I do yeah. remember that one. I will definitely check that out. I'm, I, I, a, I was slightly creeped out by that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, what is the most esoteric thing that you have read that you don't think anybody has has read but has influenced your thinking? It's called Time is the Easiest Thing, and it was done in like 1962 about a dystopian future that was really like for 1962. This guy was like way ahead of his time. Damn, I wish I could remember his name. But uh, basically, it comes down to this. Humans cannot travel through space. They don't have the ability. It just doesn't work. But science has figured out a way to transmit your essence through space by using uh, electronic and gravimetric transmitters. And they take your gravitational waves and put them into the universe's gravitational waves and you go move the planet. And you're there for a couple hours and what have you. And then you come back and you can report on what you saw and what you found. And this one guy gets there, takes a look around, sees this big pink blob. And the big pink blob looks at him and goes, hey, buddy. My mind to yours and switches with him. And then the story is what happens when this guy comes back to Earth and, um, you know, it's kind of like he's infected and it's all happening and he's the, the other creatures becoming more dominant and becoming more aware and he's becoming more telepathic and developing all these weird skills. But in the meantime, society around him is they actually put hex symbols up on walls to keep the demons out and they believe in witches and vampires. Because there's no more public education, there's no more uh, no more need for real science except in little pockets of humanity where rich people live. And this guy is he's kind of like the prototypical dystopian Jesus who's got to try and save everyone. It's a very dark book and very very funny. And um, I brought it up to people on numerous occasions. Squeeze at this guy. And I brought it up to people on numerous occasions. Everyone looks at me like I'm out of my fucking mind. So if you can find it, time is the easiest thing. And it is. It's a short book. I think it's like 220 pages. It's just, it's an incredible read. And especially in our modern society with the anti-science uh, people yeah. out there, you know, oh, there's no such as this. No, this is 1962. This is way before these idiots came to prominence. But you read it. And it's just as terrifying now as it me when I read it in high school. I was like, this guy's great. And like I said before, I kind of am drawn to the weird shit, <laughs> the broken stuff, the bent stuff. I like that the best. I tend to go there. So. This this guy fits my worldview very very well. Sounds like okay. he was definitely an influence of some sort. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna have to rack my brain to to come up with an answer for that one. Weird stuff. That I, that would be me diving into um, esoteric uh, physics papers and stuff like that. I, I used okay. to joke that I read too much for my own good. Uh, I have an understanding of physics that uh, has been qualified as being the equivalence of a PhD. I don't have a PhD. I don't claim to have one, but I've been reading physics papers. You know, I can, it, it's just a function of me and mm -hmm. my brain. I just, you know, I, I just get it. So that's why I love your uh, diamond battery so much. I can read that paper and none of, none of it is beyond my ability to grasp what's going on and i'm just like yes this is fabulous why is my phone not powered by this already <laughs> i'm sure there's a conspiracy theory in there <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure we could but um, yeah it, you know bleeding edge physics papers uh 
would be the strangest for me. Interesting. I suppose the weirdest I've read um, is Walden 2. Have you heard of that? Walden 2 by a, is by a behavioral psychologist called B.F. Skinner. I actually had to read it at school. And it's, it's kind of like an essay, but it, it moves into science fiction because they use technologies that we don't have. And Walden 2 is like a settlement and it's a utopia. But the thing is that what they're doing is they're controlling people and manipulating people by rewards and punishments. It's a utopian novel, but is a dystopian, in effect. Not many people have read it that I've met. Um, I probably only read it because I had to at school. Mm -hmm. That was a long, long time ago. I don't remember in detail. But I do remember it was, at the time, it was quite weird. I'm kind of like Damon in that I read a lot of science journals. I, I used to teach chemistry at the high school level. And even though I wasn't really a science major in school, but they needed, they needed basically teachers to do math, and I was called into action. And I think at that time, I just started a habit of reading. And I, I've gained a lot of knowledge that way. And I, I actually recommend that people that want to write science fiction start picking up a lot of these science journals. You can get them for free these days quite easily. Just subscribe to their newsletters or whatever. And it gives you a broad base of information to apply to your writing. And you do pick up a lot of strange concepts that way. I, you know, the crystal thing is, is wonderful. I love that. But um, I don't know. I guess not a lot of people do things like that. But I think it's something that is common for a lot of science fiction writers. Yeah, I have deep dived into so many genetics at this point that I could probably give a college thesis course on how to manipulate the human genome and do really shitty things to it and kill people. That's a problem <laughs> that uh, I try, try to address. And this goes to both influence and uh, how we inf can influence. And that's the idea of the human tendency to look down on others, to look down on difference. So you have the the way people will treat. You see somebody go down the street, and it, you know they're a goth person, and they're all in black, and they've got you know the black makeup. Somebody that's heavily tattooed. Some of the best people I've ever known. You know, yeah, it's a bumper sticker, but you know what? Some of the best people I've ever have been heavily tattooed. <laughs> and there, there's this bad. <laughs> oh, I've, I've got one too, and I've oh, got I'm, one on my leg. <laughs> man, I'm, I've got them everywhere. Yeah, some I will and, not show you. We, we run, you know, family show. Thank you. Yeah, um, but. I kind of deal with that a little bit in uh, one of the pieces I'm currently working on um, when Muse decides to grant me the ability to do that. <laughs> and that uh, where you have humans, well, they're yeah, technically human, <laughs> who have undergone genetic manipulation. And we kind of talked about this, uh, Wendy, a little bit in our animal senses, oh, yeah. uh, right? The people who have undergone this, they have animal characteristics because, yeah, you can give somebody the inner ear of a wolf and give them that better hearing, but if you don't have the ability to capture the sound, it's pointless. So yeah, you end you up with animal characteristics to have. 
precisely and then these people who are second and third generation are still discriminated against because of that because of those characteristics and how that's played in and there's at the government level there's anti-discrimination rules and whatnot but at the same time you can only do so much and the the main character he is one of these uh people he's fourth generation but he has difficulty being taken seriously even opportunities at his job because he isn't human and to me that's kind of a it's an allegory of sorts to the sort of um, discrimination that we see in our in our world today against people of different uh, racial, different social, different uh, religious backgrounds. It's interesting in Uplift, Bryn. How do I put it? There is there is some prejudice against the animals, you know, as the the, the hybrids as they're becoming more and more sentient and sapient eventually. But it's almost like. People get used to it. People get over it. He's very much into that. And he is like that. So that's very much him being, you know, coming to life. And God bless him. Uh, even though he's an atheist, God bless him. But like Damon says, we as a society, we have a bad history when it comes to dealing with other people. I mean, go back to the Spani- Spaniards uh, landing in Mexico. They, they were horribly outnumbered. Did they negotiate? Did they? No, they spread disease and shot everybody. You know, um, our, the Dutch East Indies company in Africa. Yay, we made friends there. Um, and, and I could go on and on and on. I don't need to believe the point, but we have a history of being very bad when confronted with the other, no matter what the other may be. And currently it's trans and LGBTQ people and everything. And seeing the kids in my uh, the library where I do mentoring, their faces lit up when they saw my comic book, Savarchik, which I, you guys may not know about it, but it's a transgender superhero. And dark as I normally am, that book is nothing but positivity and light. I wanted them to have something they could grip onto, something they could feel good about. And That's fantastic. So, you know, it's a great book. Right? We put it out on Nerdinatics and it stayed in the top 10 for 13 months. I wish I'd have known about that so I could have pro- uh, promoted it on the last LBGTQ uh, episode of the podcast. Well, I'm sure we'll have more gay people in our lives in the future so we can do it again. And I'm going to be doing a full-length version of it this year, coming, trying to do it this year. We'll get through the pandemic first and get some money back together. But uh, but it's a, it's a very positive book. And it's, But one of the things in it is this uh, Serbian fire god, and it's supposed to inherit, inhabit a man. So it's born into the body of a man. But in this case, that man becomes a woman. So when he comes to consciousness at the 21st birthday of the lead character, he's inside a beautiful woman. And that's not really where he was planning on being. So there's some funny stuff there. There's a pun in there somewhere, because I'm sure that is where he planned to be, just not how he planned to be. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He lights on fire while she's standing by a lake, and of course all her clothes burn off. So then she has to hide behind trees. And, you know, it, it's funny, and it, um, it's lighthearted, and she stops some bad guys. It you know gets the character going. It was, um, it's a character. But in there, in that long-winded definition I just gave there's a scene in there where the Serbian fire god starts reading Savarchik's mind, reading the war. He understands and starts going through all the pain she went through, the abuse from the priest, the abuse from her family, her running away at the age of 10 to join a circuit, a gypsy circuit, just to be somewhere where she was not put down upon, where people were like, okay, we're, we're, we can deal with this, we're good with this. And um, 
just all of the pain and agony in her life and all the stuff people threw at her as a child, she was trying to come to grips with just being who she is and who she was. The fire god is like, I've lived a hundred lives. I've never lived in this much pain. I've died on the field of battle and I've never felt this kind of pain. And wanted wanted that to get through to the readers, you know. And uh, it has. I've, I've had people drive for hours and autograph through that when they see I'm on public. And, uh, you know, it's it's in the Chicago Public Library System. It's in the LGBTQ system here in this, and six libraries now. I'm really proud of it, you know, considering I basically pulled the story out of my butt. No, that's um, fantastic. <laughs> you know, um, as we said, we've said in the last two uh, LGBTQ specific episodes where we've talked about inclusion and the stuff like that. Well, that was something that several of the authors, especially uh, a couple of the trans authors that were on, have stated that having something that has such a positive outlook that where the trans character is not some deviant or something like that is absolutely something that they've desperately needed. So that that's really great. Yeah. Well, they can read for free online. So I'll send you a link when we're done with this and you're more than happy awesome. to share, share it with them. They can read it for free online because we're doing it for the pandemic. So as well said, spread some positivity. Or we can send them to Legends Parallel and they'll all be in therapy for the rest of their lives. <laughs> can I ask, when you, um, like Bill was talking there about like the, the message in the book, do you start the book with that message or do you sometimes stumble into it? Because I'm, one of my WIPs, Work in Progress, is called 2D or Not 2D. It is ripped off from Shakespeare, that <laughs> title, yes. And, um, Basically, uh, a, a guy goes into a two-dimensional world, and there, they're normally when two two-dimensional worlds are described, they're kind of flat, so you can go forwards or sideways. But in mine, you can go vertical or horizontal. So the people there are either left-facing or right-facing. And I stumbled into this; it wasn't planned, but one of my characters is left-facing but feels that it should be right-facing. And it suddenly occurred to me that that might be a kind of allegory for the um, binary, non-binary, et cetera, situation. And luckily, Errol, one of our our friends in the round table, when I've written it, she's going to help me and give some some guidelines because obviously I'm straight and I don't want to get it wrong. And I want it to be something that everybody can identify with, you know, and maybe help them understand uh, the binary, non-binary situation. So what I was asking is, do you stumble across these these messages or do you plan them when you start? In Vartrick, I planned it when I started. I was working with the kids. I had three uh, trans female teenagers who were just having shit. Their lives sucked. And they'd all been thrown up by their parents. They were a living group home. And they had nothing. They, there was no ray of sunshine in their lives anywhere. It isn't like, you know, whenever people are like, oh, he chose to be trans. Nobody would choose to go through what these three young ladies went through. And not unless you're a complete idiot. You know? Yeah, you, you woke up one morning, you decided, I'm going to wear the blue sweatshirt today. And yeah, no, that's not how that works. It, it's not. It's not. So I wrote Savarche. I, I, I had three goals in mind. First was to write something that was positive for the trans community. Second of all, 
write something that an outsider could read and understand what we're going through. So there's some of it is a little broad brush. And third, the thing I wanted was something that when I showed it to these young ladies, um, that they could read it and feel like they found something that they could grab, something that they could share with each other. When I first did it, I set it up so that it, because it's a freebie comic, I set it up so if you wanted to buy a hard copy, it cost you a whole two dollars. And if you wanted the digital, I was just giving it away for free. And we're still doing that today. I don't know, 20, 25,000 downloads on this thing. More, a lot, a lot. But that was the whole point of it. Uh, we're going to do a full-length version of it. Uh, we've got the script written. Um, I had to dial down some of the violence in the script because I get I get going and I just start killing people. Like, kill, 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 kill. <laughs> no, no, wait. Positive message, positive message. Back it up, back it up. Unkill, unkill, unkill. Um, but but it, but it um, I, I wanted them to have something you know that they could enjoy, something they could feel good about. And it was interesting when we put it together. Although the three trans women that I wrote this inspired me to write this, they're all African American. They wanted the character to be white because they said if you write it as a black trans character, no one will read it, other than other black trans women. And she goes, that's a small market. So. I mean, uh, that sucks, and it, I don't want them to be right, but they're right. And if we're going to get this message across, I needed to do something else. So a Russian gypsy circus, since I'm already, I'm already illegal in Russia, there's an arrest warrant for me, thanks to the little riders. So um, that's in the whole other story. But anyway. Um, <laughs> this I ought to find out about at some point. Yeah. An- uh, all right, all right, really quick, really, really quick. If uh, making your characters, if you your inspiration was black trans women and yet you felt you had to change the character to be white. Is that not considered whitewashing? If we all oh. continue to do stuff like that, it, it when is this ever like going it... to change? I, not, not to disparage you, Bill, of course. No, I, no, no, I respect no. you greatly. But I mean, uh, even in, so. In answer to your question, yes. And part of that had to do with my experience as writers original cover was done by a guy named Jiva Molayan. He's a Liberian-American artist. He did this incredible African succubus with the giant leathery wings. I mean, there's nothing erotic about her. She was this huge, powerful creature kneeling on the ground in a dystopian hellscape, wearing a, you know, a thong, not much. You couldn't see anything because she was sideways, wings, and she's bald, and she's just powerful as hell. And Amazon put me in the porn ghetto. And then when they got me out of the porn ghetto, they finally put me over in African Women's Studies. And when they finally got me out of African Women's Studies, they put the book up and then basically you couldn't find it because they logged it wrong. That's how I ended up with the nickname Bill Messiah, but it was a really long, arduous conversation. After that, we went to distributors. Now that we had everything where we wanted it to be, Azoth Chem, my publisher, went to the other companies they were with and said, hey, we're here, we got it, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. And all the people looked at him and said, uh-uh. Not with a black woman, not with a naked black woman on the cover. We won't distribute the book. So I got my friend Petey Pettis, who on the LGBTQ tip is LGBTQ something. And she did me a cover. It's nice and sideways. And it's all bent. And it's a dystopian hellscape with no visible characters of any color. Although you open the book and read them. I got all sorts of colors in there. But, um, you know, we did this. And then everyone went, okay, you can print that. And that's how the book got out. And the girl, the ladies knew that was going on at the time. They were very well aware of that. And at, when the book was finally put out in 2016, a Russian company downloaded it and was selling Kindle copies, $3.95 a crack. Um, they sold 35000 of them. And 
we got to stop. We finally got to, you know, they were using Daily Motion and a couple of other companies as their interweave to make it happen. We finally got to stop. Amazon jumped in, got the KDB files and gave them files back. Everyone did their point. I never saw a penny from the 35 grand. And then I got a letter from a Russian embassy pointing out that because my book was pro-LGBTQ, uh, had powerful African-American characters in it, uh, or African characters because there is no American in my region, it was pro-Muslim, uh, and it had pro christianity things in there. I was a threat to the uh, Russian society, and I would be considered sana non grata and arrested upon arrival should I ever deign to grace them with my presence. So that was all going on at the time I was writing Savarchin. And so these girls were like, well, make a Russian. Piss them off. Do one more, you know? And I was like, all right, so yeah, Rus- Savarchin was kind of our giant f*** you to the Russian government. And the beautiful part about it is when we did it, I got an Afro-Korean woman to do the art. I mean, it's soybean seeded or not. So we got an Afro-Cuban woman or Korean woman to do it, which is like not good in Russia. So we purposely released the whole thing in Serbia first so that it would feed into the Russian through the underground networks over there. And then we brought it back to the U.S. and released it to American Aids because I wanted to actually get it out. But we wanted to piss some people. I mean, if I want to piss some, a country off, by God, I'm going to do it right. You know, none of this Outstanding. But, but th- this is a marketing gold mine. Banned <laughs> in Russia. This no, seriously, you need to put that Russia. on your stuff. <laughs> that needs to be a big badge on it. <laughs> yes. Think about it. For this We've particular talked- community, okay, mm-hmm. this book covers topics that have gotten the author banned in Russia will get you so much credibility in the audience that you're trying to, to reach because you're trying to empower a group that Russia doesn't want to acknowledge exists. Oh, yeah, they do not want to acknowledge they exist. But, you know, I'll talk to my publisher about it. I'm, I'm not really a controversial kind of guy. I kind of want to group out the universe and then kill everybody. But um, <laughs> you, you, You've done you one know, too many um, Shakespeare stories in your life. That's quite crushing hug. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Um, Shakespeare, uh, I, I was a big Shakespeare fan. I, I actually toured with a, a Shakespeare acting troupe when I was like 16 years old. And uh, played because I was big and I grew a beard, so I could play some Toby Belch in Twelfth Night, getting a sword fight, cut my eyeball out with a sword once, and uh, had to go to the hospital, have it put back in. Uh, you know, the shit that every teenager goes through. <laughs> it comes through in your writing now. Yeah. You're the kind of person who I'm sure knows Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, on esoteric British references, does anybody know the Tomorrow People? The original, not the the, yeah. the, the yeah, horrible yeah, remake. Yeah. 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 Yes. Gold. It was just such a great set of concepts to inspire people to look into doing things and and being, hey, wait a second, um, this tween who isn't an adult and isn't a kid, but suddenly there's a group that has powers. I want to be like that. They called it jaunting, if I remember. Yes, they did a horrible remake of it. It, it didn't last more than a couple of episodes before they canned it. I tried watching it. I, I just, it, they, they tried poorly. Um, I think they were trying to copy things that were probably not related to the book too much, and it, it lost its message. I, I think and, they were trying. They were trying to hit, hook their wagon to the heroes bandwagon. Yeah. Yes. You, yeah. Speaking of obscure British television, do you remember the 1970s show Triad? Is that based off the uh, the the book about the triad aliens? That's them. I think I have seen that one. 
Yeah, it, it lasted a couple of seasons. It, uh, it was actually it, not bad. No, no, no. It was it was interesting because in the book, the interaction between human and triads is kind of amorphous. They, they, they leave you thinking a lot about it. And I like that. I like that a lot. But in the TV show, amorphous thought is not doesn't play well. So they set it up so that people would happily sacrifice themselves to the triad so that they could keep their society going. It's like, Bob's going down to get his brain drilled today. And everyone's cheering Bob. And I like, whoa, this is weird. <laughs> Lovely show, though. Lovely show. Uh, I think if my mum and dad didn't watch it, then I didn't get to watch it. I watched, watched myself some Space 1999. Uh, oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. The Prisoner. Oh, love uh, The Prisoner. That really played into and taught me that you can have sci- sci-fi elements without being completely overt about it. Mm. Yeah. Those big kind of perhaps a strange lesson to learn from that show, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, those those big bubble bubble gum type things on the beach, Rover, they were really freaky, really strange. They were just part of the security system to keep you from escaping. I love the fact Patrick McGowan always admitted that they like at least half of that show, they're kind of like, Well, what can we use that for? They just kind of made stuff up as they went along, and um. They had very little budget, so it had to, you know, go get giant balloons and do whatever you can to make them evil. And, right. um, and that kind, of, but that level of creativity, the people involved it was in that like that. As far as Greg's earlier question about uh, how do I come, how do I come to these things? I'm a complete panster. I don't know where I'm going. I sit down, I turn, I write with music, turn the music on once the music kind of feels right and I kind of feel the flow going. It just comes out. And how that plays out is how it plays out. I'm just writing up the incident report, as it were. <laughs> I think I'm that way, too. I'm, uh, I'm more of an intuitive writer. And even though I try to plot, I have some breadcrumbs to follow. I like to let the characters come alive within me and tell me what to do and let them naturally go ahead and do their thing. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, I think it just has their own process. Um, I see a lot of benefits to plotting more ahead of time, as long as you don't get too detailed, that it kills the organic feeling of your writing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you, Damon, on that. Uh, a little more organic uh, writing is always good. I don't know. I can't go that way. <laughs> well, you're more of a scientist, uh, Eric. I'm not surprised. You probably uh, plot everything up beforehand. Well, to be honest, my first five chapters was just a dream that would not go away until I put it down on paper. I just have it every night for a week until I sat down and typed it up. Um, but the rest of it was like I needed to go out and research the science and the distances and where would the planets be in alignment to each other so I know which one to hit in which sequence and how long it would take and that kind of stuff. It, you can't kind of pants it if you're going to try and stick to hard science that way. If you're willing to go a little bit more science loose, you can get away with a lot more. But the minute you start saying, okay, I'm sticking to strictly hard science and the rules, you really lock yourself in. And there are times when I truly regret yeah, that. that. <laughs> Lately, I've been kind of going more space opera-like. I've been trying to cut myself loose a little bit of actual science 
so that it doesn't hamper the flow of the story as much as maybe I've been allowing it to do so. But that's a conscious choice on my part. Mm-hmm. I base everything. Yeah. Everything is based on um, my Peewick hypothesis, probability, wave, interaction, and chaos. Um, big word, short acronym for it. Um, and it is the culmination of all of the reading, all of the thought I get, I've given to all of those physics papers and everything that I've read. The scariest part about it is that Peewick in its current state, despite the fact that it provides me explanation grounded explanations for psionics, magic, FTL, etc. The predictions that it makes as of for the last 10 years have mapped one for one for things coming out of bleeding edge experimental physics out of CERN and the HC, etc. Which kind of like I'm not sure if I want to be that that right. <laughs> no, the hard part is is these days actually getting something that isn't going to be real science before your book hits the, the print. Yeah. Um, the more right. accurate you want to get, the more close to real science that we know today, the more likely it is somebody's actually building it. I've talked to, I, I talked to lots of experts to get the science and I've had one talk, point out to me, a lot of the stuff that I put in for medicine and stuff 200 years in the future is being reasonably uncommon, not fully there yet is stuff that, Google Skunk Works is working on today and Mm -hmm. full body scans and things like that that you'd have from Star Trek and all these things are things that they're actually playing with and trying to build today. Um, We're now at the point where we can 3D print uh, organs and limbs and attach them and have them legitimately work. It's like, okay, we're running out of science fiction. We're going to have to start inventing new, new things that are weirder just to make have a topic worth writing. Well, I, I think the the uh, space between the idea and the discovery and the manufacture is becoming so compressed now. That's why I still believe we as the writers are the original inspiration um, for a lot of this stuff going on. It's just that the science catch up with us much, much quicker today as opposed to even 20 years ago. Oh, definitely. When I was writing The Brutal Writers, I sat down with a group of theoretical geneticists. I don't know if you knew there was such a thing, but there are. And I signed a nine-page non-disclosure so I could sit and talk to them. And we went back and forth and came up with it. We agreed that the number of genes required in a human hybrid would be more than the number of genes we currently have. So I altered the DNA, and I do that in the book. And we go back and forth, and I spent way too much money on this dinner. Theoretical geneticists only eat top-shelf food, only drink top-shelf food. So I spent several hundred dollars that I didn't want to sign it, but I did. And while we were going back and forth and I was pitching these ideas with them, they came back to me and said, oh yeah, the human chimeras, you're talking about that. You're trying to build like a human bull, a minotaur, something like that. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, it's not the answer I want to hear when I'm sitting at a dinner table. <laughs> that these, people, these people are like seriously looking at, well, we could build a better human, mix it with some bat DNA and watch it fly. Uh, and, in my book, this, and uh, they're doing it legitimately for things like transplant organs and stuff the other way. Put your yeah. DNA into pigs, into other animals, so they can grow parts that we can then uh, harvest and use ourselves. Uh, and, and saw, have you seen those little uh, mini? Comment. Have you seen the little mini brains that they grow using pig, uh, human and pig DNA? Yeah, they actually functioning brains. And I'm like, no, 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 no. 
Oh yeah, that's uh, that's scary. What was it? Uh, those are kind of being looked at. Uh, at least the last article I read on that was being looked at as organic computers, mm -hmm. where it's got memory and processing power all within the same glob. <laughs> glob is probably the best description of that. Yeah, but they. Yeah, no, that's that. That's crazy because, you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, yeah, that's a little scary when you're like, oh yeah, I'm talking about I'm talking about this thing. As far as I know, when I'm starting this conversation, people aren't even really thinking of that this sort of thing outside of fiction, like I'm writing, and then they're like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> one person cannot keep track of everything that's going on anymore as intelligent as you may be as well educated as you may be the body of knowledge that humanity has now is just so diverse that i think it's almost physically impossible it's worse than that it's smattering here and there but it's just amazing how many ideas are culminating out there and and basically going right into manufacture it's incredible Today, the amount think, of new tech that comes out on a daily basis is beyond what we could. You could take just one day's worth of everything that's discovered, invented, or published is more than any person could actually figure out or read in a year. Um, so it's just growing so much exponentially. I think that actually helps us as sci-fi writers as well, because I think people are much more accepting of our ideas because they see around them. They, as you just said, they see around them technology advancing so quickly that they can they too can kind of look forward and think it's a bit unusual but who knows maybe in 50 years 100 years that could exist but again it's our function as writers to show the mm. positives and the negatives of all this new things that are coming on in a sense we're almost like a gatekeeper of a sense mm -hmm. uh, and if people follow us in our writings they can hopefully get a way to digest stuff that's coming down the pike but uh yeah it's just it's a fascinating time to be a writer or a scientist or whatever <laughs>